As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. I have to give a little bit of context to this episode because I'm so appreciative of how it manifested. A few weeks ago, I was contacted by a listener in Australia called Yusuf who I've never met, that just wanted to discuss the podcast. From that conversation, I was introduced to the guest in this episode. Now, this episode is with Muhammad Chowdhury, who I was introduced to as a fascinating guy who is well-versed on a number of important topics. That wasn't untrue. Then I looked at his CV He's been educated at Oxford, Cambridge and Harvard. He's worked as a consultant for some of the largest firms across the world and has worked in many different countries, always working at the highest tables. He is recognized as a leading emerging markets technology expert by the BBC, the Financial Times, Forbes and beyond. But Muhammad is also a writer and he's recently published a book called Border Crossings, My Journey as a Western Muslim. It's a thought-provoking, moving, and witty account of his extraordinary adventures and career, written in a way that makes it relatable to the reader, while touching on a number of topics of particular relevance to modern Muslims. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 14, Border Crossings, A Journey Within a Journey. I've done lots of business writing in the past i've blogged for forbes i've written for the financial times and you know other sorts of journals etc i'd always have thought that my first ever would probably be a business book um, or a book about economics or something but it ends up being more of a book about my journey which wasn't really planned but um came about by a variety of circumstances around when i was traveling in the middle east a few years ago so i'm i'm glad to have got it out there it was a pretty big effort just to put it all together it was a long and fairly difficult difficult journey, but I'm glad to have gotten it out there, you know. In a sense, that the story that the book relates is the journey. But interestingly, what I also found was writing the book was a journey in itself, because as you could probably imagine, when I'm writing about this sort of journey, uh, I'm sort of untangling it and piecing it back together again in my mind as I'm writing. So I'm not necessarily writing it as I was thinking it, as I was living it, if you see what I mean, you know, it's it's yeah, a sort of yeah. it's got the benefit of of being untangled and laid out in a certain way for the for the benefit of sharing it with with many others. So there was a journey in writing the book as well, if you like, which there would be with any book, I'm sure. I remember somebody saying to me, he "said writing a book is like having sex. When you get to the end, it's the orgasm. 
and seeing your book published is the cigarette afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, all right, that that, that sounds that sounds brilliant, <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> so I don't know if you, but you, you're now smoking your cigarette. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think. Um... I think it's right. It's it's sort of it is finished now, and um, there's a side of me that's you know relaxed a bit. You know when when the thing came out, and I, I got a copy in my hands over here in Melbourne a few weeks ago, and a box turned up with a few of the books in it, and I felt like it was it was the end of of that particular journey for sure. Felt that sort of s- certain level of satisfaction, but then I guess you know another journey begins, and now the journey has begun of just getting the book out there and you know, talking about it and all that sort of stuff. So so there is that journey. But that's a, a more, not relaxed as such, but it's a slightly more um, indulging journey, I would say. It's one that I'm enjoying and pacing at my own pace and so on. Um, it's not the hard graft of writing the book in the first place. Yeah. But also looking from your CV, I'm sure you'd be a lot more comfortable in on in that arena and that side of things. Would that be correct? Uh, very comfortable. No, very comfortable with that. I mean, um, it's partly to do with the work experience of just having had to talk about things a lot through my career. It's something I have to do every, pretty much every day. But I suppose the other thing is that I don't really feel like I've got much to hide. So I'm not thinking, overly thinking about what to say and not to say. I've, I've pretty much put it up, put it out there with the book if you like. So, of course, there are private things that I haven't said and perhaps don't need to say, but in terms of the actual message, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly clean and clear with it in my mind. So, in that respect, I'm quite ready to get into discussions about it. I don't want to say your journey starts with 9-11, but I think the, the essence of your narrative starts with 9-11. They always say you remember exactly where you were when big events happened. And 9-11, I was what 2001 I was 13 years old I was at boarding school and I remember walking into the common room and the tv was on and you could see the planes you know on repeat going into the into the buildings into the buildings into the buildings into the buildings and I remember walking in it literally just happened the the first plane had just gone in and I turned to my friend and I said this is going to be blamed on the Muslims and he was like he was like huh and I was like, no, just wait. And literally within five minutes, it was like, ah, this such and such. Uh, and it said like, you know, Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden or whatever it was. And, and I was like, there you go. You see, I told you. And and he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I mean, that I was 13 years old. And I personally, there wasn't much of a change in my life. I say that as I was at boarding school, my schooling continued on as it did before. I never really made an issue of it. No one really made an issue of me being Muslim. I used to pray in the common room. And actually something that was really nice is that I remember once praying in the common room and then one of the boys put the TV on and another guy said, no, 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 you have to turn the TV off. Like Abdullah's praying. <laughs> and it was just like funny memories like that. But I, uh, it didn't affect me, or at least not consciously. Now, I would love to hear the first things that really struck you as a professional pre-2001 and post-2001. Like, what were the, the, like the biggest memories that are like right up there at the top? Look, I think there was 
without any doubt, um, an element of before and after 9-11 for, for me. And I'll say that because the day, and like, like yourself and like millions of others around the world, we, we have a memory of what exactly we were doing at the moment. We first found out about the airplanes going into the Twin Towers. And um, I can distinctly remember being in my office in London, in Charing Cross. And interestingly, I'd just flown back from Islamabad that morning. Uh, I'd like landed that morning into London off an overnight flight from Islamabad via Dubai. And I remember sort of getting into the office a little bit jet lagged and then watching this. And uh, life for me did change quite dramatically straight after 9-11. And I'll explain why. But before I do that, I'll also say that whilst I think a certain switch was flicked at 9-11 on Muslims in a certain way, and I'll explain why, I also think that there were various patterns about how Muslims were being seen or perceived in the West in particular that had begun way before 9-11. And there was a pattern that was emerging, but then 9-11, I think, really flicked a switch. So why do I say it flicked a switch? So I'd, I'd say it flicked a switch for me because, you know, I was a management consultant. I was about sort of 10 odd years into my career by then. And uh, I was traveling a lot. I was, I was probably averaging about 120 flights a year, has been my average for about the last 20 years. I would be traveling to 25 to 30 countries every year, you know. So for me, 9-11 had a big change because airport security changed overnight after 9-11. And of course, for people like me, I was, um, you know, an absolutely prime sort of target, if you like, for security at airports, because I was single, I was Muslim, I had Muhammad as a first name, <laughs> I, had lots of, I had lots and lots of stamps in my passport. And all of those things, I think, sort of add up profile points to, you know, someone who might be, you know, more likely to be stopped, if you like. And, you know, sometimes for understandable reasons. So I was getting stopped all the time after 9-11. And probably in the, in the 10 years post 9-11, I would say uh, that I was probably stopped, searched, questioned or interrogated at least 50 times um, in the 10 years post 9-11. And that would be in, in Cairo, in Mumbai, in Brussels, in Madrid, in, in Boston, and you know, like, like all sorts of locations all over the world. Um, mostly fairly routine, a few occasions which were utterly and completely frightening, um, some of which covered in the book, and one or two which were quite comical. Now, before 9-11, some of that was happening already. And I say this because, you know, in my mind, I think there was a time probably about 20 years before 9-11 where the identity of Muslims, particularly in Western countries like the UK, started to change or started to become a bit more distinctive. Now, why do I say that? So, you know, I was born in, in the late 60s. So obviously, when I was going to school, it was like the late mid-70s, late 70s. And I remember having lots and lots of racist experiences when I was a kid. You know, I went to school in southeast London, fairly, fairly rough part of, of town. My school was a place called Catford in southeast London, fairly rough area. Um, and we used to get racist chance all the time is to get called packy and this and that and, and, and all that sort of stuff but all the problems were racist problems they were nothing to do with religion you know, whether we, we were hindus or muslims or jews or christians if we had dark skin we'd get called packy that was or, or something else if you're if you're african or, or west indian now what happened i think after the iranian revolution of 1979 and at that time i remember 
people started expressing more proudly that they were Muslim. And and when I I was about twelve or thirteen at the time, and I remember that beginning to change just around that sort of time or after that sort of time. And by say another ten years later, that sort of visibility of Muslims was much more apparent. So when I went to Oxford in 1986 as a, as an undergrad, I grew a beard, bit of a bit, not quite as thick as your one as I can see, but to a fairly <laughs> decent bit of beard. And um, I remember coming home one weekend, and my dad, my mum, my uncles were all quite religious. They were like, "Say, what is this beard thing you've got going on here? You know, like get get rid of it. You look really scruffy. It looks like a total mess. Please get rid of it." You know. And I didn't get rid of it. I kept it. But I, I took a, a bit of a, you know, a lot of flack from my relatives for having a beard. Three years later, they all had beards. <laughs> you know, um, all those uncles had beards. And m- many of the women in my family were, were wearing a scarf or a hijab. And so I think there was this period in the late 80s, early 90s, where this identity of Muslims becoming more apparent had come up. And so from that point onwards, we weren't necessarily packing. You know, then you've got new words for Muslims. And so by the time 9-11 happened, which is another 10 years later, I think Muslims as an identifiable minority in Western countries was already formulated. Mm. Uh, you just made me think of the film East is East. <laughs> Hilarious movie. Uh, there's, just so many, there's like certain scenes that I'm just picturing because I remember my mum saying that like there's like certain things that happened in that film. It's mm. like, exactly what happened to her or to one of my uncles or something like that and 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 actually reading those first few chapters there were so many snippets that you mentioned and they just triggered memories of stories that my mother had told me about when they were growing up my mom would love your book your mom's <laughs> pakistani right british yeah, pakistani Paki- british pakistani so she was her and all her siblings were born in the UK, grew up in Yorkshire, but it's the same thing. It's like yeah. my uncles just constantly being called packies and then they want to have a fight with everyone. And it's just like mm. my grandfather <laughs> came to my grandfather came to the country with nothing and worked a job and then worked two jobs. My nanny was, you know, looking after four children while working and it's just like it's just mental, man, in this tiny little wow. house. And it's kind of like, it's the same story as so many of our parents and grandparents. And I mean, it's, it's, it's heroic, man. Those stories oh, are completely so heroic. Completely Go to the other side heroic. of the world with nothing, with your family and make something happen. And there's so much, so much that we can learn from it. Pioneering and brave, courageous, and in so many ways, very heroic. What was it that kind of drove you towards management consulting? Like, what was it that kind of uh, put you in, in that direction? Look, when we, when we grew up, my parents absolutely wanted us to you know, pursue professional careers and again, get into a field of some sort that, that would be to our choice and our liking and that they would see as being one with a good future. And I remember when I was doing my A-levels um, in England and um, thinking about where to apply for university, I remember I was going to do engineering stuff and um, I went for an open day to Southampton University to go and look at the engineering faculty. Um, and it was a, it was fantastic. It was really good. But on the train on the way back to London, I just decided that, you know what, I don't think engineering is the right thing for me to do. I'm probably just not going to, I'm not going to enjoy it. 
I can't just tell. Yeah, it might be good for some people, but it's, it's not going to work for me. I just thought it was going to be, you know, a bit too sciencey, and I want to use the opportunity to learn more about the world. So, so I did some more research, and then I said to my dad, "Look, I'd like to do politics, philosophy, and economics." And he goes, "What are you going to do with that? You know, I mean, I mean, <laughs> you can be a doctor, you can be an accountant, you can be an engineer." So I sort of convinced him, and I, I told him about what the background is and all that sort of thing, and I sort of convinced him, and then he was absolutely supportive, and so was my mum. But the reason why I'm saying that to answer your question is because when we grew up, I mean, we, we grew up in a family of migrants who'd come to England. We'd gone through the sort of the breakup of Pakistan, and my parents had been very involved in campaigning for the freedom of Bangladesh and so on. And I remember some of that from being a child. And you know, grew up with my parents, you know, sort of eking out their income to try and get us through private school. And every year we'd go back to Bangladesh for holidays, for, for the summer holidays. And I grew up with this massive divergence, if you like, between the poverty and the desperation that I would see in Bangladesh, which was then a relatively young and new country with huge problems of poverty, malnutrition, disease, and so on. And then I would see the affluence of the UK and the rel relative security and um, privilege that we would have in the UK. And I grew up with this feeling that I just don't like this difference between the outcomes that humanity gets. So my motivation with studies was to, to get into fields that would help me look into more of this sort of international situation, which is why I did economics and politics and so on. I applied as a grad to PwC because they were the only consulting firm around in London that was doing lots of international projects. Um, and a lot of them were in Africa and Asia and so on, funded by people at the World Bank and the European Union and so on. And I just sort of thought, I think that's probably a good thing for me to try and do. That's why I, I went in that direction to start with. Um, and then luckily enough, within probably a year or so of starting work, I'd started getting onto a few of these international projects. Um, and I sort of took it from there. So that, that was probably why I went into that field if you like, um, to, to start with. And I think even though I've changed jobs a few times and oh, actually I'm back at PwC now having changed jobs a few times in between, um, I think that that thread of motivation is still quite similar, which is, you know, I like working on things which help people, communities get better access to services or outcomes. So in my case, it's more about digital, but I'm really working on issues that get people better access or better opportunities and better affordability for services and so on. So I've still got the same motivation even now, sort of 30 odd years later. Amazing. The episode that will be prior to this one is with a man named Omar Vadio. And it's basically looking at the concept of Muamalat, which is the kind of transactions within Islam and looking at it from what is the future of economics and trade in a way that incorporates Islam in its entirety. And of course, part of that is giving back to people on a ground level. And he's talking about the, basically the new jobs that are going to emerge in the next 10 to 20 years, just based on, on this. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, if that's exactly the sort of thing that, um, in a different way, probably to Muamalat, uh, I've, I've worked on or I've been lucky enough to work on. So, for example, you know, back in about 2001, actually 
soon after 9-11, to be honest. Um, Saudi, I worked in Saudi Arabia for a period of probably about two years, coming and going from London on a fairly regular basis, advising the kingdom on deregulating its telecom sector. So its telecom sector was, was a monopoly. You know, it was completely controlled by one company called Saudi Telecommunications, which is still there. And so access to the internet, to mobile, to fixed line communications was completely run by one organization. And, you know, I was running the team that advised the government on how to break that all up into having lots of different players and, and much more widespread access to the internet, for example. So if you look at the impact that's had on a country like Saudi, or indeed on dozens of countries that I've been lucky enough to work in on the similar sorts of topics across Africa and Europe and um, the Middle East and Asia, you know, it's had an impact on literally hundreds of millions of people in terms of getting access. And as we know, you know, access to the internet today is completely, it's almost like a basic human right. I mean, I, I mean you know, I mean, I, I worked in Myanmar just seven or eight years ago, you know, before the recent coups and, and so on to advise the government there on opening up its internet access and so on. And of course, we've also seen how access to um, information and the internet can be manipulated or misused by governments too. But in general, I think, you know, that sort of digital access has played a huge role in um, emancipating, you know, people economically as well as socially around the world and in terms of access to opportunity. You hear so many stories of people with this name and that name in their passport. And, and obviously, you've had a lot of first-hand experiences mentioned in your, you, you've talked about it in your, in your book, etc. Um, but you did mention earlier that you had a few very scary um, interrogations and a few comical ones. And I'd like to kind of hear those stories. Sure. So, uh, no, there have been a, quite a few scary ones. Let's start with those. And, and I'll have to be a little bit careful not to do, um, not to do a spoiler, if you like, from, from the book. <laughs> but, um, but I've had um, a nine-hour interrogation once at the border between Jordan going into Israel, effectively entering the West Bank at the Allenby Crossing, the famous Allenby Crossing, uh, about an hour's drive west of Amman when you, when you get to the border. That was a pretty frightening experience, and it was one that involved a you know, significant amount of contact with Israeli security officials and a series of interrogations that went over, over a few hours. So that was pretty frightening, um, actually harrowing and frightening, although it came out of it um, well. I've had situations, for example, in, in an airport in, in Egypt where I was driven round to the back of the airport in a military vehicle, put in a shed and made to wait there for about 45 minutes, not really knowing what was going on. And then, you know, continue from there. Um, I've had situations where I've been stopped traveling into the US um, on a few occasions where I've been stopped, questioned, held for two hours once before I, was, before I was let go to sort of proceed with my travels domestically. So I've actually had quite a few, some of which have been pretty frightening. I need to be careful not to do a spoiler on that stuff for those who are going to be reading the book. But um, what I will say, Abdullah, is that most of, well, pretty much all of this started happening after 9-11. I think it did have a lot to do with my profile uh, as, a, as a passenger and as a traveler. It possibly also had something to do with just, just the fact that different intelligence agencies, I think, coordinate 
their information a lot more now, the five eyes, for example. So if you show up on one, you are more likely to show up with another. So that, that can happen. Um, there have been a few comical ones, one of which, again, it's a write about in the book, but I'll just tell you really quickly is um, uh, you've got to put yourself in the mind of someone who's getting used to getting stopped a lot. And um, this was about 2003. <laughs> and I was in Boston airport. And I'm going to take a very short flight from Boston to Montreal, which is about a, a 45 minute flight. I, I just finished a course at university in Boston. And um, I was about to fly off to Montreal to go and visit my, my auntie for the weekend before flying back to London. Um, so I'm at, the, I'm at the gate in Boston. And um, the security guy at the gate who's sort of sitting at seated at a table like a u.s marine in a uniform wearing white gloves sort of calls me over to sort of say yep can you just come over here please so sort of head up to his table and he asks me to unfasten my belt my trouser belt loosen it um asks me to pull my sort of shirt tails out and then he starts sort of searching me and this is all in an open gate area so all other passengers sort of sitting there watching and then he opens up my bag and he starts looking through my bag and he very methodically unpacks the bag out onto his table with his white gloves. And as he's doing it, he picks up this converter plug. I don't know if you, you know, when you're traveling around, yeah, I, mean, I have this course. Boots boots converter plug, which sort of has about 15 different combinations to it to suit <laughs> whichever country you want to plug into. And of course, it's a completely innocent device. But at the moment, and in that condition of standing at the gate with the US Marine going through my bag, suddenly this converter plug looked quite ominous. And so he's, he's looking at it, and he's staring at it, and he's sort of turning it around this way and that, wondering what it is. And I'm looking at him, looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, here we go, what's going to happen now? And um, he sort of pulls it apart, puts it back together again. And he starts gradually lifting his head so that he can look at me. And I'm waiting for this head to sort of come up and finally our eyes meet and i was really wondering okay now what's going to happen and he just started breaking into this smile and we both just went into this big mutual like right at the same moment smile and i think we both knew yeah yeah it's okay everything's fine you know nothing's wrong here and we, we just knew it and we just had that knowing smile between the two of us, which was just really cool. And then he put all the stuff back in my bag and said, thank you very much, sir. Have a good journey. You know? So that was, that was a comical experience. One comical one out of sort of many slightly more hair-raising ones, I would say. But what I'm hearing is it was a, it, a, beyond comical. It was a human experience. You both realized the same thing at the same time, and there was a mutual connection. No, there absolutely was. And I think it's a very important connection because as someone who travels an incredible amount, more than, more than anybody or as much as anybody else, I would like to travel safe. And I do appreciate the work that goes into um, ensuring that there is safety uh, mm. in, in the airports and in the skies and so on. And so there was that almost appreciation of the work that he was doing and, he, and, he, and whatever he did, he did it in a very methodical and very fair way. So mm. I was appreciating him practicing his craft, if you like, and keeping us safe. 
And I'm sure he was appreciating the fact that, look, somebody like you, you probably get this done to you quite often, you know, so so he could almost yeah. see that I was probably quite experienced at it. He could see that I wasn't frazzled by the fact that he was asking me to undo my trouser belt. He could see that I was quite matter of fact about putting my bag in front of him and not asking him, is there anything wrong? I was just getting on with it. So there was something human there. Yeah. And it reminds me of um, times when it wasn't like that. So I lived in the U US from 1995 to 1999. I lived in Washington, D.C. for four years, spending a lot of time at the World Bank. And I remember during those years, once going to the Empire State Building in New York City on a, on a sort of trip and being up there on the viewing floor. And I remember seeing a plastic bag that had just been left on the viewing deck and you know, who knows what the contents of the plastic bag were. And I remember going to a security guard and saying to him, hey, uh, excuse me, officer, there is a plastic bag just over there. I just wanted to point it out to you. And you know what his response was? Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll deal with that. Thank you very much. And then he just ignored me. And I remember thinking, hmm, that's pretty weird. Because, of course, I grew up in the UK with the threat of Irish Republican terrorism. Mm. And of course, I was used to being aware about things like that. But in the US, and I'm talking here about 1998, probably two or three years before 9-11, there was really no appreciation of that sort of sensitivity. I mean, the country had, had never really been attacked. You know, the mainland had never been attacked in, in modern times uh, until 9-11. So the fact that somebody had left a bag at the top of the Empire State Building full of contents, nobody really cared about? Nobody cared about it. That, that was just three years before 9-11 fascinating eh? i mean and that's it's yesterday that's absolutely right i mean it's look it's now 20 years since 911 it 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 feels like yesterday obviously you've had all of these fascinating experiences and why did you write this book what was the kind of driving force behind it um back in about 2003-4ish i started learning arabic I was single. I'd just gotten divorced. And I, you know, a bit of a cliche, I guess. I wanted to start a couple of new things. And um, I decided one morning, oh, I'm going to learn Arabic. So I rolled up for Arabic classes at SOAS in London, School of Oriental and African Studies, on a Saturday morning, once every week for three hours. And um, the reason why I did that, by the way, is because I'd grown up learning how to read the Quran, how to pray in Arabic. And I was a devout Muslim. However, I didn't really understand anything unless I read a translation. And I found that intensely inefficient and quite frustrating. And I felt like, you know, I wasn't really being true to myself. So that was one motivation for learning Arabic. And the other one was because I was working in places like Saudi Arabia and Oman and Bahrain, and as I was saying earlier, at that sort of time. So I got into this Arabic, and I got into it in a really big way. So within about a year, I was really becoming quite fluent in Arabic. I mean, I mean, they hadn't really seen anybody pick it up that quickly. And part of that was because about nine months in, I said to my teacher, where can I go and learn Arabic properly? Because whatever I'm learning here is great, but it's like a textbook sort of thing. I can't even go to Edgeware Road and order a cup of tea without somebody laughing at me, because I'll say, and they will just laugh at me because that's not the way you order tea if you go into a cafe. That's a very literal way of saying, I would like some tea. She said, go to Damascus. 
So I took a three-week holiday to Damascus, and she arranged for me to have a teacher there. And I, and I got a very noble lady there who taught me for three weeks, uh, pretty much total immersion. And, and I started making lots of trips to Damascus. And I started traveling around Syria, and then Jordan, Palestine, Turkey, etc. And I started writing on my travels. And I put all my writing together, and I sent it to... Robert Fisk, who used to be the chief Middle East correspondent of the Independent newspaper in the UK, he sent me a load of feedback on my writing and he met me. So I met him. And he sort of said to me, look, he said, look, Mohammed, um, you're not Mark Twain. So, you know, Mark Twain wrote about Damascus and, and you know, he wrote about it with a, de- a level of eloquence you don't have. <laughs> I said, yeah, no, no problem with that. <laughs> and then he said, however, um, you do have something that Mark Twain doesn't have and I don't have, which is that you think like a Westerner, but you've got brown skin and you're Muslim. And people trust you and welcome you, whether you're in Damascus, Jordan, some desert location in Jordan somewhere, or you're in Palestine, they welcome you without any question. Yet you look at them like a Westerner. And they, they don't do that to me. And, and you can write. So that combination, he said, is actually quite unique. There aren't many people doing that. So you should exploit that lens that you have, Muhammad. So he said that to me. So I went away and I sort of thought, um, I need to start saying more about this perspective of Westerner, which is why I started writing more about my childhood and how is it that I started dealing with these cultural chasms, if you like, between the West and being a Muslim and being a Bengali and so on. And I think that's really where this idea came about, Abdullah. Uh, I've got a book here. And that's when I started writing. So probably about 2005, six, I really started writing. And I was traveling and working at the same time. And I was writing on flights and in hotels and in restaurants in the evenings and stuff like that. And um, that's really why I wrote the book. And it was written by about 2010-odd. It was finished. Amazing. Well, the first draft was finished. And then the and it's just it's just been published now. It's just been published now. So it sort of finished it by about 2010. Got an agent in London. He took it to a number of the big publishers, and the book was well received. But the publishers all pretty much had the same question, which is, "Is he a member of Al Qaeda?" <laughs> and the answer was, "Well, no." I mean, the whole point of the book is that you can be a Western Muslim and quite adjusted. So no, 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 he's not a member of Al Qaeda, and he wasn't. And there was, there was that time, I don't know if you remember, back about 10 years ago, when it was quite fashionable for people who'd been very active Islamic fundamentalists to start writing books. And they sold really well. And, and, I, and I think there was this whole sort of yearning from these big publishers. Um, well, look, if he's a member of Al-Qaeda, we love the book, we'll buy it right now. And he was like, no, he isn't, and he wasn't. And so we didn't do a deal. We couldn't get a deal. And then, I, and then I, <laughs> I just, it's very, 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 very ironic, right? And then, of course, I, I thought, okay, fair enough. I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I, I sort of, it's ironic and it's, it's sad, but I get it. So anyway, so then we just left it. And um, I was married by now. We had a, we had a child. We, we spent a bit of time in South Africa, living in South Africa. Then we lived in Cairo, and then we were off to Mumbai. And um, it was only about five years later when I was wrapping up in Mumbai, and I used to write for Forbes magazine in Mumbai, and I sort of thought, you know what, this book thing, 
I need to do something about this book. So I went to see my friends at Forbes and I sort of said, hey, tell me who I can talk to about this book. So they introduced me to one of India's leading literary agents and she read the book. It's about 2015, 2016 now. She read the book. She loved it. And she got me in touch with another agent in London. They both loved it. And that's where the journey really began of taking the book to market and then um, publishing it. I'm curious now working for somebody like PwC corporate during that period of time, like would you be doing the prayer at the office or things like that? Absolutely. So I, I, I pray at the office pretty regularly and I have done throughout my career, whether working at PwC or working at um, other organizations of work for such as IBM or, or Vodafone. So uh, very much been able to do that. But I'm also quite, I don't like to make a big deal about being a Muslim. Because I, I, I believe that, you know, as we live in secular and multicultural societies, there is a degree of um, privacy to, to our faith, which is important. But at the same time, I'm also not secretive about my faith. So if I need to go pray, and I'm, I'm in the middle of a meeting, um, I will quite happily say to my colleagues, excuse me, I, I just need a two-minute prayer break. I'll, I'll be back shortly. I mean, I don't always say it because it's not always appropriate to say it. But if it is appropriate, I'll say it without any qualms. And I'm, and I guess I'm probably doing a couple of things when I'm doing that. Number one is I'm, I'm genuinely explaining why I need to be away for a few minutes. But I'm probably also doing something else, which is I'm just broadcasting a little bit that you know, look, we are multicultural here, and, and everyone's obviously absolutely no problem yet. Off you go. <laughs> a bit like the way you were saying about your school experience, uh, Abdullah, after nine eleven, and the TV was turned on. So. For me, it's always been pretty straightforward about that sort of thing. The only times when I've, well, some of the times when I've been very careful about um, observing prayer publicly or, or in a way that's maybe obvious to others is probably after 9-11, where I started becoming a little bit paranoid about doing that in a way that might make others feel uncomfortable, because mm. there was that period of time post 9-11 and post the London bombings of July 2005, where there was a heightened consciousness of Muslims, and I certainly didn't want to feed people's um, fear, however irrational the fear might be, yeah, by yeah, making yeah. it overtly, you know, needy that I would need to pray somewhere, etc. I just, I think, if I'm not mistaken, after nine eleven, I think I started doing the opposite almost it's like i'd be in the park or something i'm like all right boys i'm gonna do the prayer now <laughs> just yeah. to make just well i did just... <laughs> there were a couple of occasions i was there was one occasion i think this is actually right before 9 11 i think it was it was probably about a year or so before 9 11 when i was in i was in granada southern spain um on a holiday and I went to a mosque there it was right it was right around the time when Ramadan was beginning and I went to a mosque for the prayer one evening and the muazzin said to me uh, are you going to visit cordoba i said yeah i'm planning on going to cordoba tomorrow he said well when you go to cordoba when you go to the mesquita make sure you offer two rakat of nafal prayers in the mesquita now the mesquita is the spanish word for mosque and mesquita in cordoba is it's basically now within a large cathedral because once the um, the muslims uh, left or were pushed out in 1492, and the Spanish did the sort of reconquista of the region. Um, you know, many of the Islamic worship sites were reconverted or converted into 
churches. And so the Mesquite in Cordoba is within now a large cathedral. So I went in there and sure enough, you know, according to the advice of Muazin in, in Granada, I started the Turakat Nafal right there in the Mesquita, which is, of course, inside this cathedral. And the moment I did that, two Spanish sort of police officers came running in. And I think they must have been watching for this with tourists uh, who are Muslims, came running in, grabbed me by my arms, started pulling my arms apart and stopping me from praying. And uh, in the end, I wasn't able to complete my prayer. I was basically just sort of pulled away and dragged away from the site of this um, <laughs> mesquita into the outside and sort of told to, to go away and pray somewhere else. <laughs> um, so there the, the, the were the odd things like, like, like that. But the one thing I wanted to tell you just before you come in, Abdullah, was um, going back to my PwC days. So I was in the Middle East once. In, I was in Abu Dhabi um, meeting with the big sort of telecom operator there and um, with, a, with another colleague from the London office. We'd both, both flown in. He's an English guy. I'm, I'm the sort of this Muslim British guy. And we're in the CFO's office of this telecom operator. And it's time for Asr prayers in the afternoon. And the CFO was looking at me. We could hear the azan going off in the background. So he's looking at me with that sort of look of, oh, I've got to go and pray. And I looked, at, looked back at him with that sort of, yep, yep, I'm with you. you know. And of course, the English colleague didn't really know what was going on. Um, and so all of a sudden, um, the CFO starts sort of rolling up his sleeves. He's getting ready to go off and do his wudu. So I started rolling up my sleeves, took off my jacket, you know, roll up, roll up my sleeves, started taking my shoes and socks off. And I was sort of suited and booted. And this English colleague was looking at me like, what is Muhammad doing? We're in a meeting here with the finance director. And he started taking his shoes and socks off in the middle of this room. What? And he, he looked absolutely aghast. And um, I said, don't worry, Rob, everything's under control, you know. And then um, <laughs> off I went and we went and did our prayers and came back. And then afterwards, of course, Rob was, was hugely relieved. He, I, think, I think he thought he was observing some sort of HR incident, which he was going to have to go back to head office and report. <laughs> but in the end, he realized everything was okay. <laughs> I know you, you mentioned that you, you wanted to touch on the, 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 your upbringing and was almost the, the lack of kind of heroes growing up. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, because when I think about growing up in, in the UK, heroes weren't easy to, to fit into my life. The heroes that we were presented with didn't quite feel right in, in some way. And that's probably more to do with being a migrant community which had a different cultural and racial background and faith background to the majority population in the UK at the time. And so in many ways, the heroes that we were presented with were, were people that didn't necessarily look like heroes to us or feel like heroes to us, or we didn't feel like them. So, um, you know, if Winston Churchill was a hero, or if Julius Caesar was a hero, um, or if Sir Francis Drake was a hero, um, to me, there were different sides to those stories that I would have heard, particularly the Winston Churchill one, which would make me question whether they were really heroic or not in an entirety. But there was also that element of, well, I'm not much like any of these people, you know? I'm okay, I might be a man, but the similarity pretty much ends there. You know, I'm you know, these are all Christian, I'm Muslim, uh, these are all white, you know, I'm 
I'm I'm black, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we, when I say we, so, I mean I would speak for myself, I guess. I mean I really struggled with the concept of a public sort of hero. I mean I had personal and private, you know, heroes in my family. I mean I, I, I would my father was like a hero to me in many ways, probably more so after his death than during his life. Um, you know, my great uncle was a hero to me in many ways because of many heroic things he'd done in his life. But publicly, we struggled with heroes. Now, I remember as kids, um, myself and my cousins all growing up together, um, when we used to think of sports heroes, again, they weren't great fits. So so my sporting hero as a kid was Ian Botham, who was the great England cricket all <laughs> Um, and he was, you know, he did amazing things on the cricket pitch. But then again, he used to do drugs. He used to drink. He used to get stopped for drinking and driving. He used to beat people up in bars and pubs and all that sort of thing. And he wasn't really, from a Muslim perspective, much of a hero in the broader sense of the word. Wasn't he quite racist as well? So, so he was. He was allegedly, you know, a bit racist. But then again, he was mates with Viv Richards and with Joel Garner, you know, who were the sort of black cricketers in Somerset and, and all that. So he was a very um, complicated character. And, and he was a heroic character in many, many ways. And I still really love him for everything he did. But what I'm trying to say is that he didn't quite fit in every way. Um, and so I remember we ended up with heroes that we could re- relate to. And therefore, they were quite odd fits. So, for example, there was a British Olympian called Daly Thompson who won a gold medal for the decathlon, or I think it was a gold medal, anyway, back in about 1980. And he was black, and he was one of the first black sort of British sports heroes. And I remember he became a massive hero of ours, probably just because he was black, you know, (laughs) because we had that sort of way of relating to him more than others. So we did actually have a struggle, and I certainly had a struggle with with knowing who a real hero was and to really relating to a hero. That's something that I probably didn't have um, as easily fitting to my life uh, as, as maybe others would have done. Mm. And, and now, <laughs> as, as one's kind of, you know, gone through life a little bit further and gained more experience... Now I think it's it's a rich tapestry of, of heroism because, as you say, because because of the benefit of maybe that experience or, or that travel, is that I've learned to perhaps um, observe and, uh, and accept and appreciate people for the heroism that they've done, and that's now regardless of their race or their faith or their creed or their gender and so on. So I've so I've now probably got loads of heroes. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like like. But no, not any one of them is a hero for everything or in every aspect. But I have got many, many people that I would regard as heroic. Um, Muhammad Ali, I think, you know, I, I wept when, when, I, when I heard of his death. I was in Dhaka in Bangladesh on a, on a business trip the day he died. And I remember weeping, um, just watching it on TV. And, you know, I remember him carrying the Olympic torch to the 1996 Olympic Games in, in Atlanta. And I remember weeping with pride. Uh, he was a hero, not just because he became a Muslim, but also because he resisted the the draft to go to Vietnam. You know, and he stood up for rights in a way. And he was eloquent, and yet he was a champion. Uh, but he was a champion not because he was the technically 
best boxer in the ring, but he was the most sort of smart and gifted and strategic boxer. And for those reasons, he was a champion. And so he was a champion in the ring, but he was a champion outside the ring. And he was a champion in fields, you know, like resistance to Vietnam, which were way beyond, you know, the boundaries of his schooling or his knowledge or his philosophy. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and there, were, there, were, there were great thinkers who sort of took him as an emblem of this resistance to the futile war and so on. So there were many reasons why he was, for me, a great hero. He, that doesn't mean he didn't have his faults. Um, I'm sure he had his faults, but he was nevertheless a hero. I don't know if you managed to listen to the episode on Afghanistan. Mm, I, I listened to the first um, 20 minutes this, this morning uh, when I was going for a walk. <laughs> I actually wanted you to listen to the last 20 the last, minutes. <laughs> I, didn't, I listened to the last five minutes and the first 20 minutes, actually. Okay. Yeah. Because what, <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what Jawad was saying was the importance of that part of the world and as a British Pakistani in his case, but he's also talking to the British Afghans and British mm. uh, Indians, Bengalis, etc. That one should be looking and keeping an eye on that part of the world because things are going to happen there and things are going to change. Just if you look at it from a purely geopolitical perspective, I mean, you've sure. got Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Russia, China. I mean, it's like that part of the world is, is changing. Things are shifting. And America is, I mean, oof, collapsing. The West mm. is collapsing under the pressure of, of their financial system and just, you know, the pandemic and all of the ramifications of that economically. And that there's something new happening in that part of the world and just to keep your eyes on it. He was saying that maybe it's the fragrance of the West that can heal the illnesses of the East. And I was kind of wanting to ask you, what about the reverse of that, where it's the fragrance of the East that heals the kind of illnesses of the West and looking at it the other way around? Because we are genetically or bloodline from that part of the world. We are Westerners, but we have that Eastern heritage. And it's kind of looking at it yeah. in, in reverse. It's a very, very interesting question. The, the, what comes to my mind, Abdullah, is the frame of the question that you've posed before even wanting to try and answer it. And the frame, I think, is very interesting because you've juxtaposed you know, the East and the West. Now, my mind initially goes to, well, what is that juxtaposition between the East and West? And of course, history has shown us that there has been this juxtaposition between East and West, you know, whether we go back a thousand years in history or perhaps even 3,000 years in history. However, most of that juxtaposition has been due to some geography around the Urals and around that sort of region of Anatolia, etc. And, and we've seen various movements in history that have happened in the East and the West, clashes, if you like, between them. But I would say going forwards that it's important to be aware of that frame because I, th I think that frame is changing. And I'm, I'm not sure the geographic frame is going to dominate in the way that it has in the last 2,000 years because of the advancement of technology. 
which has meant that human societies and human groups are no longer as crisply defined by geographic boundaries as they have been in the past. And going forwards, that definition will continue to morph. And so this whole idea of a schism between East and West, I think, will, will, will blur over time. It, it won't go away overnight. Nothing does in history, but it will blur over time. In that respect, I think that what we might see in 100 years' time may not necessarily be the product of a particular trade-off between East and West, but it might be something completely different, completely new. Even if we look at Islam, even if we look at modern Muslims for, for a moment, what will be the currency that underpins the understanding of Islam in 100 years from today? It may not be coming from schools in Baghdad or in, in Cairo. It might be coming from schools in Cambridge or in or in North America somewhere as, as, as much. If we look at the world and how the world is changing, I, I, I do agree that we need to keep an eye on this sort of Central Asia region of the world. I think it's a region of the world that the great powers have had an eye on for at least 250 years. You know, if we just go back in recent history, you know, the, the Russians, the French, the British, and the Chinese. And we, you know, we had the great game of the 1800s, the, the Balshaya Igra, uh, as the Russians used to call it. And we've had many great games since. Uh, we've had cold wars, effectively, and we've had hot wars. I think it's a region that will continue to be of interest, not necessarily because of mineral resources per se, but because of the accessibility of those mineral resources to the rest of the world which is why I think the Transcaucasus is interesting because of the pipeline options, you know, between the Caspian Sea and, you know, down into Turkey or the Mediterranean or the Black Sea. Afghanistan is interesting and Pakistan because of the accessibility of routes to go directly down into the Arabian Gulf. I think Pakistan and China having a shared border and the Karakoram Highway is interesting because of that geopolitical capability that gives China to bypass India, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I think there are quite a few. So in my mind, I think this region will continue to be of interest, not just because of its mineral resources, but because of its accessibility. I don't think the West is collapsing as such. I think the West is challenged. And I think it's challenged because the democracy experiment, which the West has proudly spoken of for, for five or six decades now since the end of the Second World War has been significantly tarnished in the last 20 years. Tarnished because of the way in which the Allies went to war in Iraq, tarnished because of the failure to export democracy to many countries, including Afghanistan, tarnished because of the way in which the United States managed to elect somebody to its highest office that was completely unfit for being the leader of the free world. Uh, tarnished for all sorts of other reasons. So I think democracy is significantly tarnished. I think localized political movements are much stronger than people would ever have thought 15 or 20 years ago all over the world. And I think, you know, there is a rise in the economic power of countries like China, which has now started to become very, very significant. So for all of these reasons, I think the West is really challenged and really troubled. 
I do think it will take another five decades before the West declines. And that's because I don't think China wants to play a global policeman role, to be honest. I think it's too busy building its economy. Um, and I think it will carry on doing that. I don't think Russia will do much beyond the, its own sphere of geographic influence in the areas where it can and feels like it needs to. And I think America will dither in and out and continue to uh, for a few more decades because its economic prosperity depends perhaps more on global sort of stability than than Russians do, for example. So I think for various reasons, I just think it will take a bit of time. I don't think it's like some instant decline that's happening. Um, but in that decline or relative decline of the West, it's not clear yet what is going to perhaps emerge that's going to help define that future. Yeah, no, I was just saying that I, I was looking at it more in the perspective of, I mean, look, the Roman Empire split in two and then you know like the byzantines they still tottered on for another 500 years after the roman empire had already started to collapse so it, i'm looking at it in that sense more that we're in an interim period the the, the height of american hegemony that is is in the past you know it's things that's the way i see yeah. it I, th I think I agree with you about that I've, and that hegemony has been relatively short-lived because it lasted maybe six or seven decades which is perhaps low, less than others in the past but I, I would agree with that I think that hegemony has passed its peak and then again you've got now with with technology everything is sped up to such a degree that things shifts and changes and everything can be you know Things are changing very quickly. I mean, it's like 20 years ago, the world was a different place. And now suddenly it's changed again in that 20 years from 9-11 to what the American failure in Afghanistan. Well, what I think is what's what one question that's very, very interesting for me is will Chinese national hegemony work globally? So the Chinese economy is a phenomenal machine already, internally, domestically. Um, and when you look at Chinese technology, uh, Chinese technology is being developed within a very, um, if you like, uh, defined sort of government policy and parameters. Um, but how will Chinese technology work in a globalized sense? I think is a big question for me. So obviously there have been limitations to Chinese technology applied through all sorts of Western legislation in the last few years. And that's a, that's a condition that applies today, but over the course of the next two, three, four decades, what will, what will be the possibilities for Chinese technology and what will be the limitations for Chinese technology, partly because of how it's being developed that I think would, will play a big role in, how things get defined for the future. This episode was a delight to record, tapping into Muhammad's experiences and knowledge. And in many ways, I feel this conversation mirrors his book, Border Crossings, in that it touches on relevant topics, but always in a way that's relatable, insightful, understandable, and often fun, which I guess is really just a description of Muhammad's being. So I'd advise getting yourself a copy of his book, I've added the product link in the episode description.
Thank you.